Good morning, everyone. My name is Carl Kester. For the last two years, I have had the honor of being the board chair of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. And our conference here started uh, with what was a fantastic overview by our executive director, Marvin Ventrell. Thank you, Marvin. Uh, my, for a living, I am the CEO of Lakeside Myelin Recovery Centers. That's a continuum of care in Seattle, Washington. Uh, perhaps the genesis of my work in this field is I consider myself a person in long-term recovery. Well, so do other people consider me that. Um, you know, as, as we get this started and, and I think about my involvement in NAATP and I've had uh, the honor and the privilege to be involved for the last 16 years on the board, the last 14 years, and my time as a, a CEO of our organization has been the last 17 years and I've been in the field 24 years. And I look at the opportunity to be here with you this morning and I try and think about what I could say to start this conference that might be worth your time. And I've come up with a couple of things, the first of which is a question that I would like you to consider. Why are you here? And I imagine that there are as many different answers as there are people in the room, but I would like you to really think about that for a moment. Why are you here? Because I can tell you why I think NAATP is here, or what I've read in the history of NAATP, or what I've learned from talking to the founders of NAATP. But I truly believe to be as effective as we're capable of being in this next chapter is if we can come together on why we're here. If we have an understanding of what brings us to this meeting room, what brings us to these conference rooms, what is the foundation of what we have in common, then I believe we can change the world. And that's the second thing. That's the reason that I'm here, and I, and I don't think I could take this opportunity without telling you a short story. And it's not a happy story. Jill is a friend of mine at work. She's new to our organization. She too would share with you that she is a person in long-term recovery. Jill is delightful, she's kind, she's thoughtful, she spent a career in another industry and really wanted to come to work in ours. And she has a skill set that we needed and she brought her 34 years of sobriety to Lakeside Mom Recovery Centers. And she's an instant hit, everybody loves working with her. You would love being alongside Jill. If you didn't, that would be your problem. And Six months into our organization, we got a call from Jill's friend. She wouldn't be at work because her son had died. 24 years old, died of an overdose. And what she asked for was support. And so I went to the service for Jill's son. And those of you that have been to services for people in their 20s that have died of overdoses, they take on different shapes and they have different levels of involvement. And she was there with her full knowledge of recovery and disease and loss. This is not the first person she's known that's died as a result of alcoholism or other drug addiction. And she was the greeter. And she circulated the room. And if you're like me, you get a little pit in your stomach and you look to see if there's another way into the big room and how are you really going to be able to do this. And there wasn't, so I walked up to Jill. And with tears in her eyes, she welcomed me. And there was a little more to the conversation, but I said, this is terrible. And she said, yes, it is. And I said, I'm so sorry for your loss. 
And she said, so am I. I said, this is why we do what we do. And she looked at me square in the eyes and said, we have to do better. I only had one response to that. I said, yes, we do. And so when I was thinking about my comments for you this morning, that's it. We have to do better. Now somebody will grab a headline or somebody will say, that's MAT. And my response to you is that if progress is made through appropriate diagnosis and medication, fantastic. But from what I'm interested in, or for what I'm interested in, I'm interested in perfection. I don't want there to be any more people dying from addiction. That's lofty. See, people were dying from addiction way before there was an opiate epidemic. People are dying from alcoholism today. People are dying from addiction to other drugs today. Certainly the opiate epidemic is tragic, is horrific, expediting the illness and the frequency of early death. Certainly we have to do everything we can there. But we seek perfection. We seek to save everybody. And so in doing that, I need your help. I need to understand the rules. I need Mark Dunn in Washington. I need to understand the Affordable Care Act. We're just maybe starting to understand the Affordable Care Act and apply some parity, and we may lose it. I need to understand the Internet. Organic search versus paid search, I was getting pretty good at that. Early on, people are buying my name or our organization's name. I don't like that. Is that good business? Is that unethical? I don't know. Now people are taking pictures of my website and making them their website, taking my listing on Google Maps, putting their phone number on that. Is that fair business? Is that unethical? Is that illegal? I'm trying to make sure in my position that I advocate for the people that I work with. They deserve to make a living that is commensurate with their skill, their effort, and their investment. Is it the right strategic thing to stay in network with the insurance payers? Should I be out of network with the insurance payers? We've been struggling with that as an organization for 36 years. If I go out of network, am I supposed to quadruple my bill and waive copays and deductibles? Is that the right thing to do? Is that unethical? Is that illegal? I need to understand the rules. The rules are changing rapidly, and I'm not sure that I get them. And so if we can come together and we can say these are what the rules should be, this is what addiction treatment looks like, this is what funding for addiction treatment should look like, this is what regulators should do to support people getting help from this disease, this is what help looks like over the long term, this is how that should be supported. If we can come together on that, then maybe we can make some progress. And for those of you that were here last year, and I know Marvin will remember this, I talked about one word, and that word was trust. That's what we're trying to give the patient, the family. We need to engender that as leaders into our organizations. We need to have financial practices that build that within the community. So these are some of the things that I look at and I say, this is what I need from NAATP. Because my goal has always been and will always be to get better. I seek progress in my personal life. I seek perfection as a treatment provider. I don't want anybody to die. I went to a big to-do a few years back for asthma. 
and a very distinguished physician in the Seattle area sat at the podium and said, we want to er eradicate asthma just like we did tuberculosis. And I didn't know whether or not that was true, but I sat in my chair and I said, I've never heard anybody say that about addiction. What if everybody was well? What if our children didn't get sick? That's perfection. So, lofty goal. I don't know that it's achievable in my lifetime. In the back of my head is my friend Bob M. from the 12-step program. He says, I can't wait till they invent a pill to cure addiction. I'll take two. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe that will happen in my lifetime. Maybe there will be great advances to ease the pain and suffering of those afflicted with this illness and their family members. I'm optimistic. I know that you are working to do that. I'm so proud to be part of this. I am so excited to be part of NATP, and especially at the level of effectiveness we are today. I am so excited to be here at this conference, a very visible takeaway of what we're doing to improve ourselves. We are so lucky to have the esteemed team that has put this conference together, to have the board of directors that is supporting them, and to have the conference staff this year. My good friend Peter Polanka has been the conference chair. He's spent a career in this field. He has helped everybody across demographics. His work has never been about who's paying for treatment. It's about how this treatment can help the individual that needs it. So I'm very excited to have Peter come up and talk to you about the conference. So I brought this notebook. My welcome will only take about 45 minutes. <laughs> welcome. And I am really, really glad that you are here and glad that you're here uh, and glad that I get to follow Carl. Uh, and glad that I get to follow Carl, who followed Marv from last night. I think the tone has been set for our conference, and I think the tone sounds like do better. Um, and how I think about doing better, uh, by the way, if I haven't said welcome, uh, welcome. Um, how I think about doing better happens uh, because of the people that are sitting in the chairs in this room. Uh, Marv said last night that the leaders are here in this room. The people that are going to make a difference after we leave the 39th annual addiction leadership conference are here in this room and doing better happens as we have conversations here with one another conversations that are respectful conversations that are real conversations that are grounded in trust conversations that have an ethical underpinning to what we're going to do when we leave and I really am committed, uh, committed more than I feel like I've ever been in, in my 40-year career. I've spent 20 years of that in the public sector and 20 years of that in the private sector. To think about the fact that for the time that I have remaining, I want to do better. Carl, thank you for that. That feels like a challenge. I want to do better. And, and I really want all of us to want to do better. Um, we know the data, we know the impact of the disease that we're all very, very interested in eradicating. We know that that disease is taking friends and family members and people that we don't know each and every single day. And, and to get better will take all of us, all of us sitting in the chairs that we're in. 
Part of my welcome, by the way, I was supposed to mention um, the conference planning committee, and I want to do that um, because the people that put together the conference spent uh, a number of chats on the telephone trying to come up with the very best conference to help us all to do better. Uh, of course, we were led by, and uh, the foundation to all of that was by the incredible NAATP staff. Could we just do one more quick round of applause for the incredible NAATP staff? The conference planning committee is made up of uh, Denise Burtonep from Crossroads, Antigua, Ann Brown of Rosecrans. I haven't seen Ann Brown do anything besides stuff bags and walk around and do stuff since I got here. Eric Button, Sherry Layton from La Hacienda, Eric Button from Burning Tree, Annie Peters from Harmony Foundation, Kathy Palm, last year's conference chair from Tully Hill, Nitsa Rodriguez from Task, Ruth Ann Rigby from Capstone, Phil Rutherford from Recovery is Happening, Marcia Stone from BRC Recovery, Art Van Divier from La Hacienda, and Annette Zumwalt, who is our golf chair uh, also, and she's from Hired Power. Just a quick round of applause. <laughs> this year's theme to our conference is a unified addiction treatment provider platform. I think Carl said that a lot more simply uh, than maybe that says it, and the tagline for that should be doing better when we leave in a unified way, doing be better because we're working together, because we're committed to doing better, and we're committed to doing better to serve those right now who are still suffering. That's the challenge, that's the opportunity that we have before us. I, am, I feel fortunate, I feel blessed to be here with you. Uh, I look forward to shaking hands with and hugging those of you who I don't know, and I am very, very, very excited to be your conference chair this year. Marv, thank you very much. I used to, you know, teach and attend lawyer conferences. Nobody hugged. There was no hugging at lawyer conferences. <laughs> you ever walk into a treatment center? Maybe you're visiting a colleague center. Maybe you're interested in what they're doing. And you know what's going on in there right away? You ever walk into a treatment center and you say, ah, this is a good place. You ever walk into a treatment center and say, something's not right here. It doesn't feel good here. The culture of a treatment center, for those of us who know what healing looks like, the culture and the feel of a treatment center where people are getting well versus a values-less treatment center is palpable if you know about recovery. And I visit treatment centers. It's part of my job to visit treatment centers, and you just know. You know when something's not right. You know when the culture's not there, and it comes from leadership, right? These guys are leaders. The people on my board of directors are leaders. And the culture starts at the top and it trickles down and it starts at the top and trickles down without exception. Um, those are the kind of leaders we need to be. We need to be the kind of leaders that are watched by our staffs, 
from the COO and the CFO to the line worker to the facilities person to the kitchen staff and say, I want to be like that. There's something special about that woman. There's something special about that man. At the end of the day, after all of the finances are done and all of the hiring is completed and all of the lawns are mowed, there's something special about that person. They want this to be a place of healing and that's why they founded the place, that's why they went to work there, that's why they get up in the morning and come here. That's what leadership is about. And if we have poor leadership, we'll have poor centers. That's why we're here, that's why I think we're here. Carl, it's a privilege to work for you. Peter, you've done a fabulous job this year. We're not off, you're not off the hook yet because the conference chair becomes the past conference chair, as was the case with Kathy Palm last year. So I don't know if I told you that, but you're still on the job. And I'm just going to go ahead and call him out right now. We'll start planning for, Katie, sorry, don't hyperventilate, but we'll start planning for Denver 2018 in about 48 hours. And the conference chairs will be Bobby Ferguson from Carbondale, Colorado, and Annie Peters from Estes Park, Colorado. I talked about the value of professional community. We are leaders gathered here for a, as a professional community, and it's about values. That's what these gentlemen talked about. That's what we'll be talking about. Uh, the, the rest of our time here. I want to take the, just a couple more minutes this morning and thank folks again because the community is supported by generous people. That's how this happens. We have, I, I wrote 600, I think we're up to 650 attendees uh, or, or pretty close at this point, 110 exhibitors. To the 25 of you who didn't get in and got on the waiting list, uh, get in earlier. Uh, that's, how this, that's how this is going to work. Uh, to all of our sponsors, especially our Tier 1 sponsors who are so generous, Awakenings Recovery, Hazel and Betty Ford, Cumberland Heights, Karen, and NSM Insurance. Uh, these folks are very generous. How about a round of applause for them? And Rosecrans, who gave us breakfast this morning. So, enough for me. This is a privilege. Carl, I'm going to ask you to come back up and invite your panel. This is a very wonderful, distinguished panel. I can't wait to hear from these folks. Talk about leadership. We're going to hear from leaders. Thank you, Peter and Marvin. Doug, Phil, Mark, would you guys like to come up? So uh, we set the bar high with the conference, and, and we believe that we've cleared it. And what we want to start this morning with is we have, uh, there is the pursuit of leadership and then there is leadership exemplified. And the three gentlemen to my left, uh, I guess if I'm going to follow a leader, I'm a little bit interested in, in where they're going or if they've gotten where they say they were going in the past, right? These gentlemen lead some of our larger organizations and I would say most successful organizations by any definition by the integrity of the services, as Marvin has described, uh, by their financial strength, as uh, perhaps Wall Street would uh, subscribe to. They are, uh, it has been my privilege to know each of them a little bit, some more than others. They are who they say they are, and we have a real gift this morning, and so you've got their names there, you've got a little bit of their bio. My guess is that you all know them. Uh, we've asked them to share uh, their experience, uh, their observations, each of them have decades in healthcare, if not in this field specifically. Uh, and so we're going to simply do a little bit of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now 
uh, for our field uh, from the perspective of their leadership positions in their organizations. And we are lucky enough to have uh, Doug Tiemann go first uh, with a focus on our field's history. Doug? ADHD, so I have to stand up here and walk around a little bit, uh, so uh, you all have a great view. You get, I, I, I'm not great from the front, but I'm really lousy from the back, so uh, in, enjoy. Um, and I want to really thank Carl for inviting me to do this, and really pleased to be on this panel with uh, two really good friends, uh, both Mark and, and Phil, and I'm and and grateful that you'll let me have a little opportunity to talk about the history. Before I do that, though, I want to tell you a story. Uh, Got in late last night to Texas, and uh, I remember the first time I came to Texas. I'm a farm kid from Missouri, and our vacations typically were going to some extended relatives and kind of bunking there for a week or so. And uh, we had a distant relative who lived in Texas, and we came down to Texas when I was when I was a kid. And uh, my dad, who was a farmer, always loved talking to others in the community about what's, what's farm life like wherever we happen to be. So, with this distant relative, he began to ask these questions about farming. And he says, "Leroy, hold on there a second. We don't have farms in Texas. We have ranches." So my dad said, "Well, what's the difference between a farm and a ranch?" And our cousin says, "Ranches are much larger than farms." And so my dad asked him, well, how much larger? And he said, well, let's put it like this, Leroy. If I were to get in my pickup truck in the morning when the sun came up and drove all day, by the time the sun set, I'd probably just about be across my ranch. And my dad, pretty unimpressed, just kind of said, not much of a pickup truck, huh? <laughs> Perspective and stories. I want to talk a little bit about that. Big ranch, lousy pickup. In many ways, addiction's like that. Great recovery, lousy results. And we're going to talk just a little bit about the perspective that people have on that. Now, with any kind of luck, we're going to talk about history. Just a quick question. How many of you, when you were in school, liked history? Any of you like oh, Quite a few. OK, remember, it's an honest program. How many of you did not like history? Be honest. Honest program, there you go. Okay, how many of you don't remember being in school? Where are you, Mike Early? I know you don't remember. I've heard your story. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to disappoint all of you because I'm going to talk about a history of our field in about 20 minutes. So it's going to be. So those of you that like history, this is going to be not a whole lot going on here. We're just going to hit some high high spots. So those of you that didn't like history, my apologies. Tough to put up with 20 minutes of anything that you don't like. But I think it is important to get an idea of where we're going to take a look at. How did, we, how did we get here? So I want to just share with you a couple of a, a quote. And Dan Anderson, when I started at, at Hazelden 35 years ago, Dan Anderson, my first boss, talked about history a lot. And he always shared this quote at the beginning. I just want to read it to you because I love it. You've asked me how I feel about whiskey. If when you say whiskey, you mean that devil's brew, the poison spirit, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, and it goes on and on and on like that, I am certainly against it with all my heart. But if when you say whiskey, you mean that oil of conversation, the philosophical wine, the ale consumed when good fellows get together, that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips, and it goes on and on and on, then certainly I'm in favor of it. This is my stand, and I will not compromise. This was on the House of the Senate in the 1880s. 
uh, talking about the problem of alcohol. And all of us know from history, alcohol has always been a problem. Good or evil. Some people it works fine for, other people not so well. So Dan Anderson, who was one of the architects of the Minnesota model, I feel like I really had a, a front row seat uh, to watch history by having him as my first boss and spend 35 years in this field, 12 years with Hazelden and, and the last uh, 23 with Karen, has given me kind of a front row his seat to hi history kind of unfolding. And I want to share a little bit of that with you. But when Dan would talk about this, he would always say, the need has always been there. There have always been people who struggled with this. So that's point one that we need to understand. Need has always been there. Second thing that happened, finally in the mid-20th century, a couple of things happened that people actually started getting well. And there's sort of three major pieces. There's methadone maintenance in the 60s, therapeutic communities in the late 50s, and then Alcoholics Anonymous in the middle and uh, the Minnesota model in the 30s and 40s. So we finally, so we now have need. We have something that actually starts getting people well. I might just ask the question, how many of you have read Slaying the Dragon? All right, quite a few of you. If you haven't, read it. A very detailed history, particularly of the 1800s, of the desperate nature of our nation to try to find out something that would work. Nothing really seemed to work, but finally, in the 20th century, we come up with some things that work. And I want to just take a moment. I'm not going to talk about methadone maintenance, not going to talk about therapeutic community. Those are also, it's interesting how all three of these have kind of come together now to work together a little more effectively, and that's important as well. But the Minnesota model, Wilmer State Hospital in the 1940s, Nelson Bradley and Dan Anderson, looking at the population that they were serving and hearing about this uh, crazy thing going on, on the East Coast called Alcoholics Anonymous. And they came up with what would be known as the Minnesota model. And fundamentally, it was alcoholism is a primary illness. It's not a result of something else. It's not a symptom of something, something else. Second thing they, they determined was that it is a multiphasic illness, impacting people physically, mentally, and spiritually. And you needed to have professionals deal with all three of those. That the person leading the treatment experience should be somebody who understands recovery, probably somebody in recovery, and the best way to sustain recovery is to go to 12-step meetings once you're through with the treatment episode. That really caught on, gained traction. So now we have something that uh, need, something that works, and so treatment centers began popping up around the country, by and large localized. However, there were a handful that attracted patients from around the country. Hazelden, Chit Chat Farms, which would become Karen Treatment Centers, Alina Lodge, Guest House. So there were a number of ones that kind of got a national reputation. But the thing that was interesting about all of them was they all were mission-driven, wanted people to get well. So need, something that works, and we get the third part of the equation, money. Something that will now pay for this to work. And James Kemper in the 1960s, someone we should be eternally grateful for, someone in recovery, began to get insurance to pay for treatment. I remember Dick Karen visited James Kemper in 1964, and as a result of that was able to get Capital Blue Cross in Pennsylvania to begin to pay for treatment. Within a decade, all 50 states would require insurers 
to pay for treatment. Well, then we go to the public funding part and add to a nation that's concerned about what's going on, and we now get public funding. I want to just show you this video. Some of you may be old enough to remember it. Whoops. Video. What? Here we go. As I talked to the people from New York State, I realized the need for money uh, to deal with this problem. I am glad that in this administration, we have increased the amount of money for handling the problem of dangerous drugs sevenfold. It will be $600 million this year. More money will be needed in the future. I want to say, however, that despite our budget problems, to the extent money can help in meeting the problem of dangerous drugs, it will be available. This is one area where we cannot have budget cuts because we must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs. Harold Hughes, 1970 recovering senator from Iowa, began, gets uh, the Hughes Act, establishes NIAAA a year later, uh, NIDA would come along and we now have public funding. So we now are getting this perfect storm. We now have money, insurance for those that work, public funding for those that don't work. And so all of a sudden, what does the field do? And the field responded beautifully. We cooperated and we collaborated. If, if you ever thought for a second, how do people get trained? This was, in, 20 years earlier, there was no field. So people who cared, these do-gooders, got together and said, let's talk about how do you set up a good program? How do you train people? What should the credentials look like? How do we accredit people? Everything was mission work, whether it was for-profit or not-for-profit. It was all about delivering great care. Look at the results in the 70s. Treatment centers boomed. And then we got to what I really consider the golden era of treatment, the 1980s. Any of you remember 1978 when Mrs. Ford, former president of the United States, went public? What a great, great time. Finally began to take away some of the stigma associated with, with this disease. Public began to accept it. In fact, the 80s were a time when movie stars, athletes, everybody coming out and saying, I'm in recovery. On talk shows, Saturday Night Live, everybody talked about, about recovery uh, in, in a very positive kind of way. So all of a sudden, you now have investors saying, wow, huge need, money available, public acceptance, we should get into this business. And so now for the first time, you have those that are concerned about this being a profitable enterprise, getting involved with it. And the field really matured during this time. Uh, NATAP came along, and people began to be trained to be executives. I just want to highlight, this will really say, any of you remember CCAD? Any of you remember CCAD? Thousands of people in Atlanta. That's how popular this was. One other thing that I think really highlights the, uh, about the country coming together, National Council on Alcoholism. Now it's called National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. Barely able to stay alive. But I remember in 1986, when the chairman of the board of NCA, of the National Council, was a guy by the name of Wheelock Whitney. I know John Curtis and others from Minnesota know. Wheelock Whitney, former part owner of the Vikings, the Twins, the North Stars, which was the stars when they were still in the North, um, ran for governor of Minnesota, chairman. That's the kind of person who was chairman of the National Council. The president was a woman by the name of Martha Baker. Her husband was the managing partner 
for Ernst and Winnie. That was before Ernst and Young and all that, but a major big eight accounting firm. Walking across the stage, Joan Kroc, wife of Ray Kroc, founder of McDonald's, owner of the San Diego Padres, presents to Marty Baker a million dollar check for NCA, and that's when a million dollars was a lot of money. That's where we were in the 1980s because we cooperated and we collaborated. Look at the results of the 80s. Went from 2,400 treatment centers up to 9,000. Then unfortunately, we got a little greedy. Profiteering competition began to replace cooperation and collaboration. I get it. In the 80s, in the early part, there was a huge demand for treatment and the supply, the number of treatment centers wasn't enough. By the end of the 80s, there were more treatment centers than the amount of people paying for treatment. And that's an important distinction. There's always enough people who need treatment. The question is, is there enough paying for all of them? So all of a sudden, people begin to compete with one another. In fact, I remember one person saying, it's interesting how the tone of our conferences has changed. We used to talk about care. How do we improve what we deliver to patients? Now it's all about census. How do we market it? So sound a little familiar? Two important observations. James Kemper, involved with helping to get insurance, pay for treatment, made the comment in the late 1980s that the treatment center or the treatment industry is being overrun by charlatans, profiteers, and if we don't get our act together, bad days are ahead. Dan Anderson made a comment at a conference in the late 1980s that it's interesting when he visits treatment centers. He visits treatment centers all over the country and he'd say, it's fascinating that treatment center A charges a hundred dollars a day for care, treatment center B charges a thousand dollars a day for care, and there isn't much difference between them. That became a problem. Treatment centers charged what they could charge, and that's going to lead to some real issues. We also began to have the public policy beginning to change. Notice a couple things up here. Just say no. Moderation management began to say this is a choice. You also had uh, Herbert Fingeret and Stanton Peel, smart guy, smart psychiatrist from Harvard, writing a book that basically said addiction, alcoholism as a disease is a myth. We've been pulling a con over the American people. You also began to have insurance companies say, wait a second, this stuff isn't working. People seem to have a choice. Healthcare is rising. Maybe we're paying for too much. And that began to happen. We all saw those of us that were here in the 1990s remember as treatment stays went from 30 days to 15 days to 10 days. And then there was the crash in the 1990s. I listed the five treatment centers here along the right-hand side. Collectively, they had about 10,000 beds. These are big, big players. Uh, Parkside, founded by Nelson Bradley, owned by Lutheran General Hospital, one of the real class act treatment providers in our nation, as you see here, ultimately went bust. The thing I would like to just say about all of these is that one is that doing good work, having good history, doing the right thing doesn't necessarily guarantee success. But one of the things that's also true about, about many of these is that when the crunch of hitting your numbers begins to come in, 
Unfortunately, some of these facilities started to color outside the lines. The pressure of making budget, the pressure of filling beds, people began to color outside the lines as it related to getting reimbursed. And as a lot of you who are as old as me know that there are people who were indicted because of coloring out the lines. We don't get to choose ultimately what's ethical. Eventually, there are others who choose that. And as Carl said at the beginning, we need to understand what is not only ethical, but what is legal and illegal. This is might wake you up, a little video. Person matching funds and cut the red tape on getting them equipment and training. Come on, guys, I want to hear from everyone. FBI, customs, treatment. Is there anybody from treatment on this plane? Uh, no. Well, then I want to know why there isn't anybody from treatment on this plane. Yes, okay. We need to take down one of these okay, cocktails, you can stop Juarez, Tier 1. That's the pivotal line. Unfortunately, by the late 90s, that's where we were. Forgot about treatment. Fortunately, there were a few people who began to ask the question, where is treatment? We should all be very grateful for Congressman Jim Ramstead and Patrick Kennedy, who really led the way in the late 1990s and said, even if you don't have a humanitarian bone in your body, getting alcoholics and addicts care is better than putting them in jail. We should all be grateful for Alan Leshner, who really came up with the whole brain chemistry, the hijacked brain begin to take the conversation away from we're not bad people, we don't make bad choices, there's nothing about morality, our brain doesn't work right when it's got under the, under the influence. Also began to really appreciate this as a chronic illness, a wide variety of services that could be sold along that, that continuum. And by 2000, we once again are making some good progress. Things are beginning to work again. And two of our most populated states, California and uh, Florida, which had limited land, began to have some very clever individuals figuring out how do we get by zoning. And we saw a, an incredible explosion in both California and in Florida. And we also began to say, how do we make treatment attractive? How do we get people to want to come? So we started talking about amenities, and, and unfortunately, our field became a little bit of a joke in around the 2000, 2000, 2005, 2006 era, New York Times running articles about you know, thread count and the kind of food. We start to talk more about those kind of amenities as, a, as opposed to care. I think the real game changer, at least for me, was in 2005, as we began to see sort of roll up a lot of small treatment centers becoming a little bit larger, uh, entrepreneurs buying them, private equity buying them. But when uh, Bain slash CRC bought CR Tucson, one of the premier facilities, huge name, began to say, wow, this is here in a major way. I think we're all here. Don't need to read this. I'm assuming you can all read. Mike, if, uh, just ask somebody next to you if you need them to read this to you, okay? But yeah, you'll, you'll be good. <laughs> Little smile. Come on. There you go. That's my buddy Mike Early. All right. Um, we know why they came. And initially, a lot of positive because our field is very fragmented. A lot of small facilities, typically undercapitalized, underprofessionalized, under technology. And now there is an opportunity to pull facilities together and brought a lot of capital into our field. So facilities, technology, professionalism all improved. Unfortunately, a lot began to look like it did in the late 1980s, where there isn't enough money. And so there began to be competition 
for patients. We became very customer-centric. We have turned this into a consumerism type of industry as opposed to a healthcare industry. We look at what does a patient want versus what do they clinically need. And we're all very familiar with, with the issues. I just want to hit the last two. One of the things I heard uh, Wilson Compton, he is the associate director of NIDA talk recently, he said, we're a lot like cancer in the 1960s. In the 1960s, cancer was a death sentence. And people would go to a physician and typically one of three things would happen. You'd either have surgery, you'd have radiation, or you'd have chemotherapy. And you got whatever that physician happened to do. And he said, unfortunately, that's where way treatment is today. If you go to methadone maintenance, guess what you're going to get? Methadone maintenance or buprenorphine or 12-step. He said, we need to do a much better job at, at diagnosing and sending people to the right place. Ethics, we, we've got to learn and about clarity about what is ethical and what is, is what is legal. We're all very familiar with uh, the funding trend as we look to the future. What does this look like? On the far left, you'll see that uh, back in the 1980s, about 50% private, 50% public. Today, it's 30% private. 70% public, and I'm delighted that Peter Polanka is doing a session tomorrow about the public funding. That's where the majority of money are, is, and we, make a, and, and we don't provide the kind of service there that we need to. So as we look to the tomorrow, will we repeat the 1990s? If the answer to all these are yes, we have a problem, but that can't be the story. So what should the story be? The story needs to be the 90% of the Americans who suffer from this illness who don't get care, that's who we should be focusing on. We should be collaborating and cooperating to try to get those people care. We need to let people know about what happens with incarceration. This is kind of stunning to me. If you look at prohibition era, the number of people incarcerated went up about 5% a year. If you look at the war on drugs, the number of people went up about 10% a year. If you go to zero tolerance, it went up 15% a year. Look at that. Uh, sharp incline. Fortunately, in the last number of years, we're finally seeing it come down because we realize the value of treatment. Because the story should be treatment saves dollars. We're all well aware of that. We need to do a better job of, of sharing Tom McClellan's story. It's amazing that for other chronic illnesses that have the same level of recidivism rate or success rate as we do, they're successful. But in our case, that same level, we talk about the treatment being bad or the people being treated being bad. We need to do a better job at telling this story. We should also be cooperating and collaborating so that we do get the kind of money for treatment. Treatment in our country is rationed. 90% get none. Of the 10% who do get treatment, most, particularly in the public sector, don't get nearly enough. It's a chronic illness. You need to have treatment over time. We need to have the same level of research that other chronic illnesses do. A person suffering from substance abuse disorder, our government spends one-seventh the amount of money that we spend on cancer, for example. If we spent the same amount on addiction as we did for cancer, we'd be spending a, a, um, a billion dollars, or we'd be spending seven billion dollars a year on research instead of the billion that we do spend. And we, send a, we tend to celebrate moral victories. Curious 21, come on, it's 500 million dollars. That's about 20 to 25 bucks for every addict in our country. We need to get real victories. We also, as we talk to the future, we need to become part of the entire behavioral health care world. We need to be part of health care. 
Every healthcare system in the country knows that between 30 and 40% of their cost is because of untreated substance abuse. They need us. So let's get in the healthcare business instead of the consumer service business. And we need to have visible, respected spokespeople like the Harold Hugheses and the Betty Fords out there talking about what we need to do. And if we don't, we could be like the 1990s all over again. I was asked to just say a couple things based on kind of all of this history. What is Karen doing? Our, our strategic plan, which we developed in 2015, was very simple. We decided to double down on what we were doing. And what does that mean? We're a, we're a treatment center uh, where, where we really say our care are, is for people who have choices. They hop on planes and they're going to come to one of Karen's facilities. And so to do that, we said we better have better facilities, better programs, better people. So we doubled down on that. We sold three facilities in 2014 and 15 so that we could build a new medical center on our campus in, in uh, Wernersville. We're going to be building a similar one in Florida. Uh, we also, very interesting for being a facility that, that is there for people with choices, we also want to take care of our, our local community. So we give 10 to $15 million away in charity care every year, primarily to our community. So to handle all that, we said, let's double down on philanthropy. So we're involved in a $70 million capital campaign that we're looking to raise the goal to probably 80 to 100 million because we're finding that this message resonates with people, making sure that it's premier quality. And the last thing I just want to want to just mention about some of the clinical things we're doing is is which really is a demonstration that is important for people with choices is the second bullet from the bottom, uh, being an academic research center, which is really a distinguishing factor. Uh, we're certified by the American Board of Addiction Medicine to do fellowships for, um, for those wanting that, that qualification. We train 100 physicians a year at our Pennsylvania uh, campus, uh, physicians, internists, pediatricians. We, we train another 250 out of our New York facility because we want physicians to understand treatment. And we're involved with research with NIAAA and, and NIDA. The important piece, though, at the overarching is we want to cooperate and collaborate. We think it's important for all of us to work together to help that 90% of people who aren't getting care and to make sure that treatment isn't rationed for those that are getting care. So real quick background, real quick review of where Karen is going. So I'm going to now turn it over to Mark. Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see everyone here, and uh, thank you for inviting me to participate on this panel with these uh, distinguished gentlemen. Uh, I'm uh, really uh, looking forward uh, to hearing all of the comments here this morning in the whole conference. You know, predicting the future is always a very dangerous undertaking. And uh, Doug, thank you for your overview. Uh, and I would agree with Doug, if you haven't read Slaying the Dragon, please do it. Uh, do it if you're running a treatment center, working at a treatment center. I think it's really required reading because it really puts everything we're doing in a great historical context, which I think is important as we look to the future. You know, the future, uh, the, uh, the past can be helpful, but uh, in my mind, they, it, it's instructive, but it's parallels, it's analogies. Um, are we going to relive the 1990s all over again? 
I personally don't think so. Um, the environment is different than it was in the 1990s uh, in a lot of good ways and a lot of bad ways. What I want to do this morning is I'm going to be a little more specific and a little, a little more tactical than Doug was to talk about trajectories and, and where I personally see the future going. I hope I don't offend anyone here. I'm just going to tell you what I think and where I think things are going uh, in our field and in our industry overall. I only have three slides and they're just they're mainly bullet point markers for the general areas that I'd like to talk uh, to you all about. So let me go to the first one here. Okay. I'd like to start out with a trend that Doug mentioned. He said it was a game changer when Bain CRC bought Sierra Tucson. I, I think it's important to think about what's going on in the field and looking at the trajectory when I thought back two, three years ago, when I look into the future, what is going on in our field right now and what is a trajectory? What does a trajectory look for the mode in which we conduct business? Because I think that's really important. Uh, is, is the mode strong for tax-exempt nonprofit organizations, for regional players, uh, or uh, is the trajectory moving in favor of national players? I believe that the trajectory is clearly today and for the next few years moving in the direction of national for-profit providers. And I've listed them here, and I just want to go over them briefly and then talk about why this trajectory is so strong right now. Uh, first of all, Universal Health Services, if you haven't gone on their website to look at who they are, they're a Fortune 500 organization. They employ over 80,000 people. They're a really big, big player in the healthcare field. They're not a small player. They're not new to the field. They've been here for many, many years. I mentioned a couple of uh, recent acquisitions by Universal. Uh, Talbot, I think, was four or five years ago that they acquired. And then Rob Wagoner's here, Rob's organization, uh, Foundations Recovery Network, I think about two years ago, uh, that uh, Universal Health Services bought uh, Foundations Recovery Network, and Rob is uh, continuing to run uh, foundations. Acadia, Acadia acquired CRC. Right, a couple of years ago, year and a half ago that that happened. Uh, and Timberline Knowles, an organization that we happen to work a lot with outside of the Chicago area with our Chicago facility, uh, more of an eating disorder program, but they have a lot of addiction treatment uh, services also at Timberline Knowles. Uh, you know, uh, American Addiction Centers and talking with a number of you in, in the field becomes uh, people's favorite whipping boy for some reason. Um, but American Addiction Centers is a strong, strong player in the field. They did not exist three years ago, okay? They did not exist. And now I think they're going to pass uh, $300 million in revenue over the next year um, in terms of, of, of the growth that, that they have going on. Um, you can read about them. They're, they're publicly traded. All their information is out there about all of the, the things that they're doing around the country um, to really uh, enable their growth and the work that, that is happening uh, at every level of care, residential, intensive outpatient, and outpatient, public and private with American Addiction Centers. Recovery Centers of America, you know, I know less about them, but I know uh, they, it was about two, three years ago they put out their press release that they had raised, I think, $250, $270 million um, as a pot of money that they were going to then invest in residential treatment centers, mainly up and down the East Coast. We know that they have, in fact, opened a couple because one of our executive directors is running one uh, in, in Annapolis. Um, so recovery, uh, RCA is out there. They're growing, um, and they are delivering care, um, and I expect to hear more of them in the future. And then um, Origins uh, Behavioral Health, uh, 
I think it was two weeks ago, announced that, uh, that they had been acquired by TNT. TNT, uh, you may not have heard of them in the addiction space, but they happen to own the hotel that we're at. Okay, TNT uh, owns the Omni hotels and a lot of other properties and uh, will provide uh, Origins with uh, really significant uh, access to capital and growth opportunities. So Origins now is on their way to becoming a national player. So what, what is the trajectory here? Where are we going uh, when you look at this? Well, some of these are pretty obvious, but I think we should talk about them. First of all, all of these organizations that I have listed here are going to have significant access to capital that the smaller for-profits and the tax-exempt nonprofits simply don't have. So why is that a big deal? Why is that important? Well, first of all, um, if uh, you are interested in contracting with some of the national health plans like United Behavioral Health, with Aetna, with the Blues plants, it's really important that you have geographic coverage. They're really clear that they are not interested in destination treatment. They're not interested in people getting on planes and flying around the country. So the more geographic coverage that you can have, the better contract you're going to get with a national player. These organizations have the capital and the ability to expand rapidly in geographic areas that are in high demand by the payers to cover their members in that particular area. They can invest in web presence, call centers, social media, all of the things that uh, uh, bedevil all of us these days uh, in, in terms of black, black hat marketing practices. And I'm not saying that these organizations engage in them. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that they have the resources and the capabilities that the rest of us, Hazel and Betty Ford being a tax-exempt nonprofit, don't have the ability to do. Now, my numbers may be off here by a million or two, but I do believe that uh, AAC reported in their uh, 2016 filing that they invested about $18 million in marketing, okay? $18 million. We invested about $2.5 million. So there's the difference right there, 18 versus 2.5. And, and we, we were about the same size as AAC, Hazel and Betty Ford was, at the start of 2016. We're not anymore. They're, they're bigger than that. They're, they're continuing to grow. So think about that. And then multiply it by these other organizations who've got strong ac access to capital, which means that they can hire really, really good people to run their call centers, people who really know what they're doing, people who understand the web and can really uh, do a great job of SEO and SEM and all the other magical tricks that you have to do to stay on top of this, that they can really participate in social media in, a way, in ways that, again, some of the smaller players cannot. It, it's a real challenge for, for those of us who are not in this group. It's a real challenge for us. Electronic health records. Um, we've invested in an electronic health record, uh, Hazel and Betty Ford. We went with Cerner. Uh, it's been about two years now. Um, it's been quite a challenge, quite a journey, but we're kind of at the end now in terms of the implementation, both clinical and rev cycle. We did a full replacement. Um, that really stressed our capital structure in the organization, but we were able to afford it. We were able to invest in it. Um, these organizations, it's not a problem. They have the capital. They have the ability to do it. And again, if you want to play, um, uh, if you look forward, with health plans, if that's the route that you're going to go, it's really important that you have a state-of-the-art, up-to-date electronic health record that can exchange information properly, that can move, uh, move the information that you and the plans need to have uh, to make sure that you're uh, you know, doing what you need to do uh, to document the care for the patient. So 
that's the uh, national for-profit providers. When I look at the trajectory, they are not going away. They're not going to crash like Parkside did. Um, these are sophisticated organizations. They're not going to, quote, get greedy and, and then uh, the whole world's going to collapse. That is not going to happen. They are here. They deliver outstanding care. Let's just start with that. Um, and they are competitors for all of us that are not in this particular space. Now, let me, the flip side of this in my mind, well, why is this happening? Why are these national for-profit uh, providers emerging? It's the last bullet point on this page. It is the fragmentation and the undercapitalization that we see in our field. Okay, it's amazing. I, we operate in eight or nine distinct markets around the United States. I'll use Southern California, which is actually many markets, but I'll just lump it all together, Southern California. Uh, the number of providers uh, just in the Coachella Valley, in Palm Springs and Rancho Mirage, that, uh, that we have there for intensive outpatient programming is baffling. It's unbelievable how many are there. It is so easy in the state of California to get an IOP license. Uh, Carl was telling me uh, that it's really easy in the state of uh, Washington, uh, in the Seattle area, to get an IOP license. So you have numerous, numerous IOP providers out there, you know, crowding the market, clustering the market. Um, it is generally, uh, if you want to play the game and get into the, you know, uh, the illegal and unethical practices to uh, disguise your uh, IOP as a residential program and start billing for it. That's really common um, in Southern California in that particular market. We see it all the time um, that uh, places that are barely licensed as an IOP disguise themselves as residential uh, treatment and they market themselves. And that, again, leads to fragmentation. Uh, these providers are all way undercapitalized, uh, don't have the capability to do anything that I've talked about in terms of uh, being able to participate um, and, and really uh, get what they need to do in terms of an EHR, web presence, social media, and all of those things. Um, the other big uh, area where uh, we that are on the not-for-profit side or small uh, uh, treatment center uh, where we're really disadvantaged is, is in the insurance realm. If you want to participate in insurance, if you say, no, that, that's something that we need to do as a treatment center, we need to sign with the Blues plan, whatever, you need to make investments in infrastructure for that to work and to work well for you. You need to be able to hire good managed care people so you can negotiate good contracts and that you can work uh, with the payers. And, and that's a skill set that many of us generally don't have in our treatment centers, so you need to make that investment. You need to have a good EHR, no question about it, to be able to, to work with the plan. And it's just really, really difficult for many of us here and many of the other organizations that I'm talking about to make those investments. It's very difficult for uh, the tax-exempt nonprofit and the small treatment center world to grow. Uh, it, you can throw up a few uh, uh, local outpatient centers in, in, your, in your area that you're in. Generally, that is a very low capital proposition. But if you want to grow organically with your, using your earnings and borrowing, it's a very, very difficult uh, uh, way to do it. And it's expensive. The capital isn't there. And so, again, if you're trying to even contract with a state health plan that wants geographic coverage in the state that you're in, you've got to grow. You've got to have those sites to be able to do that and offer that system of care either regionally or nationally. 
Uh, many of, the, uh, uh, of us uh, can't or won't participate in medication-assisted treatment to be able to have a full array of services for our patients that need that type of care. Participation in medication-assisted treatment is an investment you need to make because you need to have good nurses, good doctors, um, you've got to uh, have uh, counselors that are properly trained in the area, and you probably need to have several sites, again, that can do it because you've got to have a network that's available to do it. Those are investments that need to be made. And I guess the final piece I would say where the fragmentation and the undercapitalization really hurts us is, Doug had a very interesting slide up there which showed, um, it, was, it was kind of a busy slide, but it had all the bar graphs showing, um, you know, what, what, what payment looked like at the various uh, aspects of the industry, uh, private pay, insurance, uh, uh, Medicaid, state programs. And as you could see, most of the treatment in this country, the vast majority uh, of the treatment in this country is funded by the government, right? It's not funded by private pay. Um, so if, if you're going to be a 100% private pay organization, that's what you're going to do. Okay, you're at the tip up there, and it's only going to get smaller, in my opinion, as we go on. So participating in Medicaid-managed care, right, it's hard to do because of the IMD rule, right? If, if you're more than 16 beds, you're going to run into trouble there. But participating on an outpatient basis, again, it requires investments. You've got to know what you're doing, or you'll probably drive yourself into bankruptcy because the reimbursement rates can be so low. But again, that's 50 to 60% of the treatment that is provided in this country is not provided through insurance or private pay. It's through the government. So how do we work with the government as a field? And that trajectory to me is a problem, the trajectory of staying away from the government, of staying away from insurance. Um, I don't think many of us can afford to do that. I don't think that's the future. I don't see that um, as, as a trajectory that's going to sustain itself over time. So let me move on to the next slide here and uh, talk about a, a couple of others. Now there are other presentations, there's one immediately following here about the rampant industry abuses, the black hat marketing, um, all of the other things and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because you're going to hear a lot about this during the conference. For those of you who heard uh, Marv's excellent presentation yesterday, um, he talked about uh, the practices. but I have it up here knowing full well that there's more to come on this because I think it's that serious as a, as a trajectory for this field. Um, if you read Slaying the Dragon, you will find, and Doug didn't have time to address this in his remarks, but part of the reason there was a giant collapse in the 80s was because of the rampant abuses in our field. So there's a definite parallel there. There's no question about it. And we need to address it. Because if we don't address it, somebody else is. Now, Carl, I know you were being a little rhetorical when you said we need to know what the rules are, we need to know what the rules are. I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the rules in a lot of these areas are really, really clear. Okay, we live in a little bit of a bubble in the addiction field as a broad part of healthcare, but if you go over and work in a clinic, or you go work in a hospital, or you go work in a, in a full-scale uh, organization that provides healthcare across a continuum, med surge, behavioral health, and addiction, these rules are really, really clear, okay? You can't own your own lab and then mark up your services when you send to the lab and then send your confirmatory test to your own lab. It doesn't work that way in the rest of the world, okay? So I think we're kidding ourselves, and again, Carl, I know you were being rhetorical when 
Well, let's see, can I mark up my bill and waive my co-pays and deductibles and uh, just collect on the out-of-network insurance? Sure, you can do that, but again, in the rest of the world, that doesn't work. It's flatly illegal, okay? So we, 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 we kind of pretend that that's not there. We're different. We don't participate in government programs, so we don't have to worry about these Medicare fraud and abuse rules. We're okay. Well, the fact of the matter is a lot of states have many fraud and abuse statutes that go beyond uh, Medicare and Medicaid, they apply to any insurance transaction or any transaction they have with, with the consumer. And the, attorney, the state attorney generals have not geared those up. It hasn't come at us yet, but it may come at us in a state like Florida or California where the abuses are so rampant. Um, as, as we look at Leonard Bouchel's latest uh, issue every week, we see the latest thing going on in Florida, right, and, and what's happening there. Um, the, uh, the, the one that's, uh, I think, the one where we're really, really hurting ourselves, I have to tell you, as a field, is the uh, out-of-network benefits. And I, and I have that as the last bullet point there, and I have it uh, also up in the, in the abuses because they go hand-in-hand. Out-of-network out of benefits is a great thing. I had a family member who went through treatment in 2001. Uh, it was before I was at Hazelden. The, the health plan that, uh, that we were in at the time did not cover Hazelden at the time Hazelden. Uh, but I had an out-of-network benefit. It was great to have it, and it helped us cover the cost of the care. It was good. It, it, it all worked. And so out-of-network is there um, a, as a safety valve for consumers who want to seek care outside of the network that the plan offers. And in my state, it's often, you know, I need to go to Mayo Clinic for a second opinion. Do I have coverage? Well, Mayo Clinic may not be in the plan, but they have their out-of-network coverage so they can go to Mayo Clinic. Um, when that starts getting abused the way that, that it is being abused, I, we, I have to tell you, with direct conversations with payers that I had, they are trying their best to figure out how to shut down out-of-network, okay? Um, they're working hard at it, okay, because of the abuses that they see. And the abuses are here. They're in our niche of what they do. I believe it was Cigna who said, you know, that they were uh, exiting the state of Florida, as I recall, uh, because of the fraudulent abuses that they had. Now, there was probably more lab than anything else, the, the, the problems that they were having with lab. But the plans are all wise to this, and they're all looking at ways to go on the offensive and start attacking. So for those of us who have used out-of-network benefit as the way it should be used, um, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but there's a, a trajectory here that I think we all need to watch really, really carefully. If a lot of your revenue is coming from out-of-network, if that's what you're looking at as, let's say, 40, 50, 60 percent of your revenue, I think your revenue is at risk. I just have to tell you that as plans start reissuing their policies and get, um, and let's say that uh, one feature of the American Healthcare Act, I believe it's called, the, the Paul Ryan Act is passed, where they take away the state regulation of health plans, right, and allow national marketing of health plans. A lot of out-of-network features in health plans are state regulated. They're, they're, they're put in by the states, not by the federal government. I could see out-of-network disappearing relatively quickly for our field. I really could. It could happen, I don't want to say overnight, but the way health plans work and the cycles that they have, it could disappear within three years. It could be, uh, could be gone within three years or be very, very narrowly focused. So again, if your revenue stream, um, if the money that you get is heavily dependent upon out-of-network, I think you really have to look at that because the, the trajectory on that, in my mind, is not really good. The other trend that I want to mention here before I uh, go on to uh, what Hazel and Betty Ford is doing and leave enough time for Phil here, 
um, is the consumer demand to use in-network insurance benefits. Now, um, this story has happened for me at Hazel and Betty Ford now a number of times, um, but what it is is we'll get a professional athlete who needs treatment, uh, and we typically will get contacted by their agent or someone from the union, but it, it'll, that's the way it'll get to us. Every time they say to us, you know, if you're not in, fill in your plan, Aetna, let's say. If you're not in Aetna, he's not coming, okay? These are uh, professional athletes that make millions and millions of dollars every year, could easily afford our full retail rate uh, in for treatment, could easily afford all the extra amenities and privacy and all the things that, that uh, people of means and prominence often ask for when they come to treatment, and yet they are insisting that they use their insurance. Um, I, I'll have staff members that'll come up to me and go, Mark, Mark, we're not, you know, with, with, with our focus on being in, in network insurance, we're not, we're not catering to, we're not going after people of means and prominence anymore, and then that's, that's not a good thing. And I go, uh, you know, au contraire, that's not right. Of course we're still, we, we have really great outreach teams, um, our, our brand is really strong, we still have a lot of people who come to us, uh, people of means and prominence, but they all want to use their insurance. Okay, they all want to use their insurance. We've got, we've got a, a national youth center in Plymouth, Minnesota. We get uh, uh, young men and women from around the country. Believe me, their parents want to use their insurance, even though, again, their parents could probably buy us three times over, but they want to use their insurance. And I think that is a trajectory and a trend, and it, to me it's, it's kind of a, uh, uh, an offshoot of, of Obamacare. Um, is that we're all covered by insurance now, so we should all be able to use our insurance now. Um, so th the days of the expectation that I'm going to have to whip out my credit card, I'm going to have to put $25,000, $40,000 down before I can come into your program, those days are gone in my mind. Sure, are there, are there people out there that are still willing to do that? Absolutely there are. Um, Doug refers to them as, as people who have choices. Yes, th there are people that have choices that are out there, but our experience is they're becoming fewer and fewer of them as we go forward. Okay, let me go on to my last slide, my third slide here, um, what we're doing as an organization. Uh, first of all, we um, uh, have really, really focused on our growth as being within a continuum. So uh, we have really, really uh, uh, focused on growing both our day treatment and our uh, intensive outpatient programming both internally at the sites we have and geographically, that is opening new sites uh, around the country. Um, we are very focused on a full continuum um, so that we're not programmatic anymore. That is, we have a 28-day program here and, uh, and if you want to be in day treatment, it's you know uh, uh, 20 sessions for four weeks and here's IOP. We're rather, we're, we're accepting the patients where they're at clinically and putting them in the right place in the continuum, wherever that may be, and keeping them with us uh, clinically appropriately for as long as possible within the continuum. And the phrase that we use is we want to move people from expert clinical care ultimately to self-management of their disease, right? Attending their 12-step meetings um, um, and, and taking care of themselves as you want a diabetic to do, starting with the expert care and then moving uh, ultimately to the self-management that we have. Um, we are very focused on having a standardized approach to care. 
um, using our electronic health record as one of the enabling tools to do that. Uh, standard work is a big phrase in our organization right now to make sure that we're doing it the same way at all of our sites to drive out inefficiencies and to improve uh, the, the clinical care. And so um, as we look at um, our model, um, it is, it's about the continuum. We don't talk to patients anymore about, you know, exactly four weeks here and this. We talk to them about where they need to be and how long they, they, they need to be uh, in our care. So very interesting thing is going on at our large campuses like the Betty Ford Center or Hazelden and Center City. Uh, patients actually stay on campus now a lot longer than they used to um, under the old traditional model because we have them with residential and then we move them to day treatment. Um, so they may be in residential for let's say a little over three weeks. Okay, and then they'll go to day treatment for let's say 15 sessions, which is another three weeks. So they may be on the campus six to seven weeks now, having that campus experience, being in the, in, in the clinical, uh, uh, the clinical milieu that they need to be in, and that's been a great improvement as we see it in the care that we're, we're able to deliver. Uh, the second one is really big for us, and we have gone all in on, on making sure that we're in network. Um, we're going to be 85 to 90 percent in network um, at the end of 2017 here. Um, we're embracing our third-party payers as partners, and I know that's, that's rhetoric, they're partners. What does that mean, that they're partners? First of all, we're contracting, we have contracted with all the national uh, payers. Um, uh, we've got excellent agreements with them. We, in, we engage in value-based contracting with uh, incentives uh, for uh, delivering quality of care, um, good upside potential. Um, in some of our plans, we have case rates um, that, with outlier protection that we're experimenting with. We're willing to do all that um, with our payers. And we talk with our payers all the time. We actually have a couple of national payers now where there are no more uh, Captain May I. We get to manage the care. Once they're admitted, we get to have the number of days that they need in res and what, what they need to have in day treatment or IRP, whatever it may be. And, and that's, the, that's when you know a partnership is working. When, when, a, when a health plan takes off the whips and the sticks, right, you know that you're, you're doing a good job with them in terms of partnering and putting the patient uh, in the right level of care. Um, we uh, continue to measure everything we do and we publicly report our outcomes. We're revamping our website now to have more uh, user-friendly uh, graphics on it. And I wish I remembered the name of the treatment organization. I know you're here that has just these great graphics on their website in terms of specific outcomes. And we're, we're actually going to steal that and put that up because we think that's a great way uh, to display outcomes. And we should all steal from each other in this area, absolutely, as we put out our outcomes and what we're doing as an organization. Um, we're very uh, transparent internally with our patient satisfaction data. We participate in Press Ganey, so we're comparing ourselves against a national uh, database. Uh, all the time, and we are really strong advocates uh, for the uh, NAATP outcome study that's underway. We think it's outstanding. We're one of the pilot uh, programs, and we hope that this will really work for everybody um, in the field. We are expanding our opioid treatment modalities. We call it CORE 12, Comprehensive Opioid Response uh, Program. Uh, with the focus ultimately on abstinence, that's why the 12 is in there. Both internally, it's going to be at all sites in a standardized way here by by the by December at all the outpatient and the residential sites. It'll it'll be available, um, not just at our large sites like the Betty Ford Center um, and Center City. And then our uh, publishing and training division is out uh, doing a lot of work. A little overwhelmed with the work right now. We have a big contract with the state of Kentucky, for example, where we're doing a lot of training and work there. Um, we're getting a lot. Lot of requests because of the cures money that, that Doug referred to, the 500 million 
um, is, is, is there. It is a small amount, Doug, I absolutely agree with you, but it is money at least that we can start doing some things there. And, and our, just to summarize it all, we are continuing to focus on growth, uh, growing our size and our scale to be able to offer a national system of care. For all the reasons that I articulated uh, earlier, um, we're learning from the for-profits. Um, uh, they've got a lot of successful things that they're doing. We're learning from the, the great tax-exempt nonprofits um, wherever we can. But we want to make sure that uh, we are there uh, where, where patients need us, so we are continuing to grow. And that's it. Okay, I'm the closer. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, Marv said for this group we had a quota of only 35 slides. So I don't have any slides. <laughs> Thank you, Mark and Doug. Together, the three of us represent well over a century of experience in healthcare, mostly in addiction treatment. Forgive me, Mark and Doug, for pointing out the obvious, but we're the elders of this industry. Given our status as sages, we were asked to speak on trajectory, the trajectory of our field, which I mean to take and understand is where we've been and where we're going. Over the next couple of days, we'll get caught up here on where we are now. We'll learn about clinical breakthroughs, new treatment, treatment therapies, addiction trends, what's working for our patients, and what's not. But most importantly, we'll try to understand the difference between the two. We'll talk about challenges and opportunities, all the latest news. That makes Mark, Doug, and me the weathermen who come on before you get the news and give you a snapshot of the forecast. In that context, my forecast for the field is this, partly sunny with a chance of storms. What I mean by that is I'm optimistic overall, but there are some very dark clouds on the horizon that we need to be aware of. Being from Illinois, where the concept of a state budget is merely a suggestion. <laughs> I know something about the potential for bad weather. Actually, after nearly three years of no state budget, it's worse than bad. It's terrible. And all of us on this stage know about climate change. You won't find any deniers up here. Mark, Doug, and I know about the vagaries of state and federal budgets, about changing societal trends, about the pitfalls of managed care and the whims of insurance companies, the ins and outs of public funding. We've weathered these and other unpredictable factors through the years with creativity, flexibility, and the occasional, yes, miracle. Despite the challenges, we can't give up because we believe we believe in the miracle of recovery, and too many people are counting on us. When treatment centers can't and don't do their jobs, people who need care suffer, and sometimes they die. Those are the human catastrophes that we work so hard 
to avert. Everyone in this room understands that the stakes could not be higher today. Before I get to my forecast, I want to echo my colleagues in telling you something about the trajectory of Rosecrans. I promise this won't be a commercial, although I did ask if they'd put an 800 number up there. But then I thought somebody might steal it. But it's important to understand how Rosecrans has survived changing conditions for over 100 years. This is our 101 year of existence. All of our organizations have a story. They all have a starting point. They all have founders. They all have someone that gave inspiration to a cause. Rosecrans started in 1916 as a mom-and-pop orphanage, literally a mom-and-pop orphanage, serving children, mostly boys, whose parents were deceased or unable to care for them. You know, I've heard stories of it back there, back then, and what I've heard is that, you know, our concept growing up as, of an orphanage was largely shaped by stories, books, and television, but the reality of the Rosecrans Orphanage was there were many large families back then. And if one of the parents died and they had six kids, they'd go to the orphanage and they'd say, you know, I can't take care of all these children and maybe if I dropped off three or four of them and when I get back on my feet, we'll come back and pick you up. Well, the story at Rosecrans is just as that, but very often they never got back on their feet and they never came back and picked them up. The names come from a country doctor, James Rosecrans, and his wife, yes, his wife, Fanny. I love telling that story. Fanny. Who names their kid Fanny anymore? They had no children of their own, but during their marriage, they took in orphaned and neglected kids who needed care. The Rosecrans left their home to their church to start an orphanage in 1916. And so it was for some 40 years. When orphanages were replaced by foster care, the Rosecrans mission flexed and changed, giving new life and services to trajectory. We began serving adolescents with behavior disorders, mostly kids referred to us by the courts and child welfare. But in the early 80s, it was all too apparent that most of the boys and girls that were being sent to Rosecrans were abusing substances. Back then, we received kids from the local child welfare, the courts, and some of you that may have been involved in that system used to get social histories and that would discuss the plight of these kids. And often it had a problem list. And it talked about family problems, community problems, legal problems, problems with peers. And then it also said drinks and drugs daily. And it was just one of the many problems on the problem list. And, you know, we worked hard with those kids, and oftentimes with the structure of the institution and the good care of the staff, they stabilized, they did well. And then after sometimes a year or year and a half, they were discharged and they went out, and the next day, they drank and drugged daily after they left that. And we failed with that population. And in 1982, we said we need to make a change because we were seeing so many of them that were struggling. 
We realized that until we addressed this issue, we were not helping these kids. We turned that problem list upside down, and so we did a complete shutdown of the child welfare system and started an addiction treatment center. And it was scary. I remember that first day. You know, we were all uh, spit and polished and ready to go and looking out the sidewalk and hoping somebody would come. You know, we didn't have very sophisticated marketing. I think we had a brochure that I made on a copy machine. We flexed and changed new services and a renewed trajectory. In 1982, Rosecrans established residential chemical dependency treatment services for teens in northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, and eastern Iowa, and in the years to follow elsewhere across the Midwest. At that time, many did not believe that adolescents could be addicted to substances just like adults, even though they used just like adults. The evidence was clear to us, however, as we began addressing their substances and put that issue as the problem and turned that whole list upside down as the symptoms, we saw healing and we saw hope and we saw recovery in these kids. We are fortunate in this process to have the guidance of staff at Hazleton and St. Mary's Hospital, which had the experience and vision we needed, and we are still grateful for that. Through the years, Rosecrans has collaborated and benefited from NAATP colleagues at these conferences. David Hillis at AdCare Hospital, Ben Underwood at Talbot, Ed Deal at Seabrook, Doug and his team at Karen, as well as many, many other like-minded organizations that are represented at this conference. Mentors, industry leaders, all fiercely committed with fire in their belly to the miracle of recovery. Thank you all for your willingness to encourage and to share knowledge. As Marvin Ventrell said in his welcome letter for the conference, and I quote, working together and sharing what works and what does not work improves our individual practices and promotes the evolution of our field. That is the essence of professionalism. Back to our timeline. Not long after we began treating teens for addiction, the state of Illinois asked Rosecrans to take over the management and operation of a large failing adult treatment center. And we added adult services. We flexed and changed new services and a renewed trajectory. In the years after that, we recognized specific needs among certain populations, expand operations and capacity, both residential and outpatient. <clears throat> we created sober living, supervised recovery homes, licensed supervised recovery homes accredited supervised recovery homes to provide support and structure following inpatient treatment. More recently, the largest mental health center in northern Illinois merged into Rosecrans, and we began serving a mental health population of serious and persistent mental illness. That moved deepened our capacity to treat people with co-occurring disorders. And not yet a year ago, we built and opened a licensed and accredited sober living recovery home in Chicago, designed and staffed to serve young adults in early recovery as they launch a sober life. 
and by the way, that's located just seven blocks west of the Chicago Cubs Wrigley Field. <laughs> so if you go to a Cubs game and after the game see some folks that are stumbling around on the sidewalks, you can just point west down Waveland Avenue and we have a blinking open, no, we don't have a blinking sign. Now we offer integrated care at more than 40 locations in three states, serving more than 30,000 children, teens, adults, and families each year. We flexed and changed. New services and a renewed trajectory. And that's the end of my non-commercial. But I do have a few thoughts on trajectory. Trajectory, if I, as I've used it in this context, and you know, I've really given some thought to this, and it's kind of interesting. You know, throwing a ball, throwing a football, throwing a baseball, you have trajectory. You know, in my sport, fishing, when I cast a big lure for a muskie, that lure has a trajectory. And after about 10,000 casts, maybe I'll catch a muskie. Trajectory. I recently saw the movie Hidden Figures. Anybody seen that? About the women, the brilliant women who crunched the numbers for NASA. And in 1962, when John Glenn became the first astronaut to orbit the Earth, some of us remember that. You know, it's mission, mission, this is Houston, we have a problem. Remember that? And in his orbit, he had some difficulties. So you know what they had to do, and they did it by hand. They, they replotted his trajectory. You know, they didn't want him to splash down in Kansas. That would have been a problem. So they had all the factors of speed and of, of weight and, of, and a, of the resistance and of entering the atmosphere, and they had to rechart his trajectory. So you have a pinpoint landing with precision and accuracy. You know, as we consider our own organizations and we think of trajectory, and, you know, I think we'd all want to be up at the top point of that trajectory. And some of us have had to change that trajectory and make adjustments programmatically. If Rose Grants was still an orphanage today, we probably would go the wayside of buggy whips or other industries or business. We had to change our trajectory. Consider other industry examples with respect to trajectory. Macy's, Sears, Polaroid cameras, the steel and coal industry, travel agencies. In Rockford, it's heavy manufacturing. You can drive around town and see all these empty, large buildings, factories. You know, the windows are all broken out and they're empty. All the blue-collar jobs are gone. How has trajectory affected healthcare? Well, you know, in 1964, I had my appendix out. I was in the hospital for eight days. And I have a scar about that long. Well, yeah, you laugh now. You know, you, they do it, the doctor will do it sitting in the chair right next to you, and he'll give you a Band-Aid and pat you on the back and send you home. Healthcare's changed a lot. You know, how we practice has changed a lot. 
when we started in addiction treatment, and some of you can remember this, you know, there were just a lot of stories that were told. You know, what happened in that group room? You know, we didn't know what happened in that group room. Usually, it was that counselor telling his story or her story, and that was treatment. Now our trajectory and our planning is evidence-based, outcome-oriented, and accountable. On the partly sunny side of my forecast, there are today variables that have, have and are very positively influencing much of what was just said earlier. Federal parity laws now require that insurance who cover addiction must do so on par with other, other covered diseases. It's better. It's better than not having the law. It's not perfect, but it's certainly better. No more fail at outpatient first. Remember that? Or one, one treatment in a lifetime. Or $5,000 caps. The ACA. Well, pre-existing conditions are covered. You know, I'm glad for that. Both me and my wife are glad for that. Strengthen parity provisions. Essential benefits, which includes mental health and substance abuse disorder treatment. The 18 to 26-year-old coverage on their parents' insurance. Our facilities are full of these young adults. And the Medicaid expansion for those states that accepted the opt-in opportunity. Illinois did that. All it has done for us is increase our accounts receivable. <laughs> Other bright spots include, and controversially, in my opinion, but they do include MAT, medication-assisted treatment, science and medicine, has impacted our field. Education and community awareness that treatment works and is beginning to break down the barriers of stigma, improving access to needed care. Integration of addiction care into primary health care. We have counselors that, uh, we have four health systems that hire uh, licensed uh, professional counselors that we place in their emergency departments, in their primary care practices, uh, in their pain clinics to support the health system. Integrated care. Now the dark clouds on the horizon of my forecast. What keeps us up at night? You know, I used to think that was kind of a cute staying. But you know, this stuff does keep me up at night. The topics of our team meetings are angst. All right, I'm a worrier. My wife says, Phil, you worry too much. And I say, well, I've done it my whole life. I worry about family. I worry about work. I worry about our patients. I worry about our staff. Guilty as charged. But these aren't just worries. They're our reality. Right now, we don't know what will happen with Obamacare and Medicaid. We need to pay very close attention in the weeks and months added to what shape repeal and replace is going to take. We need to be watchful for so-called reforms that may build even higher walls between the haves and haves-nots. Walls, did you get that? Building walls? It comes to accessing quality. Yeah, you got it. A little slow out there. Pre-existing conditions, essential benefits, and Medicaid expansion are all in question. 
Some thoughts from my, where's Robert Wagner? Some thoughts from my friend Robert Wagner shared at a conference recently, and I quote, our industry is the worst at defining itself. Our lack of clarity about who we are. For example, what is residential treatment? You know, if you go to websites, you go to the internet, and you chase around the facts of some of these, what is it? Is it what is residential treatment? 24-7 medical model? 24-7 staffed with RNs, staffed and monitored by staff in a structured facilities, licensed facilities, accredited facilities? Or is it the controversial Florida model? We're really picking on, banging on Florida. We can't go back there, Marvin. A leased apartment in an old motel. You know those motels. We saw them when we'd go on vacation down there. You know, the one with the swimming pool and the parking lot and then van him to an outpatient clinic? Is that residential? You know the concept. But do vulnerable, do vulnerable consumers in crisis understand the difference? What about detox? Is a spa residential treatment? What is the public perception of who we are and what we do? Just ask the Attorney General in Florida if you want an earful. Not our best day there. Now the really good stuff. Numerous unethical practices are going on now and give our industry an overall black eye and court catastrophe for people who are truly desperate for help. I'm talking about the outright theft of your good name and mine by companies that intercept online searches for quality treatment centers and pretend to be us. These shady operations are no more than crooked call centers that determine if people are insured or have good funds to pay for care, they'll sell their con contact information to so-called treatment centers, some of which are highly, have highly dubious quality. Patient brokering, misleading web-based practices that pirate trademarks. And call center aggregators who sell unsuspecting referrals with the best insurance to the highest bidder. Bad form. Illegal. Hurtful to good providers. And damaging to the, to the image of our industry. NAATP is leading the fight on these ethical violations. Firmly putting a stake in the ground on these practices. Thank you, Marvin, for your comments yesterday. Another threat. Even though addictions recognized as a disease, the vast majority of the 20 million people who need treatment don't receive it. What other disease could you say that about? Broken arms? Heart attacks? I'm familiar with that. Delivering a baby. What if 10% of the women delivering babies delivered them, the other 90% said, nah. Not having it. Or broken arms or cut arteries, do they not receive treatment? We have new reimbursement schemes. You know, my team says, Phil, you should not keep calling them schemes. That sounds negative. We have new reimbursement schemes. Pay for performance, <laughs> value-based versus volume-based, and all with an eye. Now, this one I love, to flatten the cost curve. How does that work? I really don't know what all this means. I really don't. 
but it seems neither do they. I can bet, however, that none of these schemes include rate increases for providers. At the same time, we're facing changing and softening attitudes about certain drugs. Legalization and decriminalization, I have less of a problem with decriminalization than I do with legalization of marijuana, is changing the way that substance abuse is viewed by parents, school system, the courts, and more importantly, by the young people. You know, when I was a kid, my father smoked cigarettes. And when he'd come home from work at night, he'd empty his pockets, just like all dads do, you know, on the dresser. And he'd lay his wallet and his keys. And, you know, he had this little pen knife that he always carried. I don't know what he did with that. But he had a little pen knife. And he'd also lay his lighter and his cigarettes up there every night. Now, fast forward to 2017 in Colorado or many other states, not just to pick on Colorado, but dad comes home, weighs his wallet and his keys, you know, and their little eight-year-old's giving him a hug. Hi, Daddy, how was work? And he lays a couple joints and his lighter on the table. What's the message? Gummy bears. Give me a break. When's the last time one of you have had a gummy bear? I don't even know what they are. You know, they probably get stuck in my teeth. But... Gummy bears, who's that advertising and who is that promoting THC to? I think this can be a huge issue for us going forward. Fast forward to today, will I mention that? We're seeing evidence at Rosecrans that these attitudes are changing in a dangerous direction. Fewer school systems are referring students uh, who are caught with drugs or under the influence. Policies are changing. Parents who know their kids that have a problem are waiting longer for them to get through this stage. It's only pot. When adolescents do get to treatment, their substance abuse has gone on longer, and chances are they've added more dangerous drugs to their experience. Of course, the very definition of catastrophe is the opiate crisis that grips our nation. We've changed some of our operations to try to meet the needs, and still we find our capacity to be insufficient. So great is the danger of heroin that we have prioritized this population to the point that it's hard sometimes for others to access treatment. This demands a national strategy. I really believe it demands a national strategy to address this issue. but I don't see one forthcoming. Instead, we hear of proposed cuts to treatment, to research, in order to fund other priorities. Nothing is final, but this is where our voices are needed loud and clear. This is where NAATP steps up and always has. To represent us and the many thousands of people we serve every year. Which brings me full circle to the gentleman on stage here with me. We're lifers, so to speak. We've weathered the changing climate of our business for decades, and the industry surely has made great strides. We have strength in numbers and in our experience. We have a forecast of partly sunny with chance of storms. There's no doubt we will survive because we have to. In the face of challenges, we don't reach for umbrellas. We reach for plans B, C. D, etc. 
with creativity and intentionality to increase our trajectory and to focus on our missions and our patients. We will craft solutions that allow us to continue doing good work and serving the people who depend on us. We don't have a choice. I hope and pray that when Bill White updates Slaying the Dragon and writes the third edition, that he will treat us kindly and report that we have cleaned up the unethical practices. Patient brokering no longer exists. And we've agreed upon evidence-based practices, best practices, where biopsychosocial treatment and spiritual components of recovery are the norm. And we have embraced the value of medicine and science to enhance recovery. I hope he will report that we have begun to measure and benchmark our outcomes to improve care and to demonstrate value. I pray that substance abuse disorder, discrimination, and stigma is no greater than any other medical diagnosis and is treated as any other chronic disease. I, I hope he will say that in spite of changing public policy, we have figured out how to deliver the message that there is no safe level of substance use for the developing mind and body of our young people. And I hope that all and, and I hope that all those that need treatment can and will receive the miracle of recovery that can heal the broken spirit, touch hearts, transform lives, regardless of who sits in the White House. Thank you for your kind attention. Have a great time. Gentlemen, I'd, I'd like to thank you for your time this morning and, and your insight. Probably more importantly, I would like to thank you for your time and your commitment to the field. Uh, it is not only impressive, it is an inspiration. Thank you very much. Have a round of applause. By design, we are not going to have a question and answer period, but the panelists are going to stay here for a little bit and will, of course, be participating in the conference. Uh, we've got a break back in, in, the, in the hall, and we're back here at 10.30 uh, for the next session. Thank you so much.